Before I uh, hit the runway for the, the message, I want to extend to you an invitation uh, to study together the topic, the question of, of the place of Israel in, uh, in the Bible, in history, and in the future. The, the attack by Hamas on um, October 7, and of course the, the ongoing conflict and the rising death toll have, asked, have caused uh, a lot of folks to ask, what is the place of the Bible in or of Israel in, in the Bible and history and, and in the future. I'm not going to answer all those questions, but we will explore them together uh, for the next three Wednesdays, the 10th, 17th, and 24th at, at midday. Uh, lunch begins at 1130. You can register for that, or I'll begin teaching at 1215. We'll be through by one in case people want to get back to lunch or back to work. Um, and then in the evenings, uh, I'll begin teaching at 545. Of course, you can register for dinner, but don't have to do that. All down in the family room which uh, formerly known as uh, the Fellowship Hall. Now, you get, a, you get a little booklet if you, if you come. I hope you like what you got for Christmas. I, I like what I got. My favorite present for Christmas was from uh, our daughter, Brennan. She gave me something called Story Worth. Now, Story Worth is not something you can see or touch. It's not socks or ties or anything. It's a, it's a, a program, really. It's a, um, a, a project, a year-long project, whereby I will compile things, I'll write things, and then at the end, there'll be a little memoir, a little book for my kids and grandkids. So every, every Monday, I get a, a prompt. I get an email saying, write, write about this, and then this story worth We'll compile these writings, and then again, at the end of the year, there'll be a little memoir, a little book for my kids and grandkids not to read. So that's what that will, uh, that will, that's what that will be. This past Monday, my prompt was this. What advice uh, would you have for future generations? Which is a clear sign that I'm getting old, and they want to you know they're thinking about the future, so... What advice would you have for future generations? And I had three pieces or words of advice. Number one was this. Remember that the most important word in the human language is grace. Now, if you've been around here a while, you won't be surprised that I said that. But the most important word, I believe, in the human language is Grace. I, as a follower of Jesus, am grateful for grace. I, I love the fact that we are driven uh, not by rules and do's and don'ts, but, but by this overwhelming love, this unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love of God that we are compelled to do what is right and pleasing to God because he loves us so powerfully, so immeasurably. There is freedom in grace. But freedom is not unrestraint. Freedom is not anything goes. With our freedom is practiced within the boundaries of what is safe and wholesome and fair to others. Our freedom is exercised within the parameters of what is good for everybody, not just, not just me. And we're going to study today, we're going to begin to study a 10-week journey of studying a document that helps define those boundaries. This document 
includes principles that, are, that help to shape our very system of laws. The document, of course, is the Ten Commandments. But Travis, that's a list of rules. That's a list of do's and don'ts. And just a moment ago, you said, but we don't live by rules and do's and don'ts. And I did. And thank you for listening so carefully and remembering that I, I said that. Yes, I did. We, we don't live by rules and do's and don'ts. However, remember that freedom uh, is within the boundaries of what is safe and wholesome and fair to other people. We, our freedom is practiced within the parameters of what's good for For everybody, freedom is not unrestraint. Freedom is not anything goes. And so we begin today to study these guidelines that define the the boundaries, the parameters for us. And we begin, of course, with, with number one. And if you have your Bibles, find Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 20. And we're gonna read, uh, beginning at verse one, Exodus 20. Beginning at verse 1. I'll give you a moment to find it again, the second, second book of the Bible, and we'll begin reading in chapter 20, verse 1. Picture uh, the top of the mountain where Moses encounters God, and God spoke all these words I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods, little g gods. You'll have no other gods before me. Now, why would God make such a demand? The Freedom From Religion Foundation is very critical. The Freedom From Religion Foundation is very critical of the Ten Commandments, and their criticism is especially harsh, it seems, for number one. I read, God is vain and like most dictators must resort to threats. How can anyone not perceive the pettiness, the bluster, the bombast and psychotic insecurity here? So so the Freedom From Religion Foundation, critical of of the first commandment says that that, that it grows out of pettiness and bluster and bombast and psychotic insecurity. Well, bless their hearts. (laughs) This first commandment doesn't come from what we would typically think of as jealousy. But God who wired us, who breathed life into us, knows us best and, and knows that there's no thing and no one who would be better for us than he and he will not let us settle for less than the best. And so he, he demands that we not put any of those little G false gods in front of him. These commandments, including the first one, were given to enhance our our lives, to enrich our joy. Ron Mel wrote a book about the Ten Commandments and titled that book, The Tender Commandments, because he said these are not harsh, restrictive rules. Rather, they are a tender love letter from a wise, all-knowing father. So, let's study these guidelines from our wise and loving Father. So what did it mean? What does it mean not to have other gods before, little g gods before the true God? Well, it would have been obvious in Moses' day. This is 13 centuries before Christ. They've just come out of Egypt. They're headed toward what now we might call Palestine or the Holy Land. They called it Canaan. So they're headed to a land where you need to remember two words, polytheism 
and syncretism. So they were polytheistic. They believed in many gods. They had a god for fertility, a god for the harvest, a god for war, a god for health, and a god for everything. And they were syncretistic. So they, they practiced syncretism, which is, is like mixing religions or mixing gods. So they could mix this one and take that one. It was a little bit like salad bar spirituality. So God says to Moses, through Moses to his people, when you get there, don't embrace the polytheism and the syncretism of Canaan. I've, I've seen syncretism as a missionary where, for example, a... Um, a Christian mother with a sick baby would go to the pastor and the church and ask for prayers and then kind of sneak away to the Babalawo, the father of mysteries. We might call him the medicine man for some potions or incantations just to cover her bases. So God says to the people of Israel, don't, don't be polythe. You can't just take what you want and don't try to mix me with these other little G gods, you are to be completely loyal to me. That's what it would have meant, obviously, to the the people of Israel. But today, so what does it mean today? It means that the one true God who revealed himself in Jesus must be our undisputed Lord, and that his word and his grace and his mission must be at the core of who we are and how we live. I'm gonna say that one more time. Today, commandment number one would say, the one true God who revealed himself in Jesus must be our undisputed Lord and our master. And his word and his grace and his mission must be at the core of who we are and how we live. But now we're tempted by other gods too to to violate that. So what are the other gods, the little g gods that that would tempt us away from that? Well, you might have your list. Let me, let me take a shot at it. I, I think there are four. Ambition, relationship, money, and pleasure. Let's look at them one by one. Ambition. Americans tend to bow to the, to the God of ambition. Meaning defining success as our culture defines success. And the God of ambition is a dangerous little b, little g God. He will hurt people around us and he'll hurt us. Now ambition is not necessarily a bad thing, right? To, to be a hard worker, to be creative, to be known as a good employee and to have a good work ethic, that's a very good thing. To, to, to make goals and reach goals and feel the satisfaction of ambition, that's a good thing. But there's an invisible but very dangerous line beyond which ambition becomes a God. So this God will hurt us. We, if we put all our eggs in our, the basket of our vocation, if, if, if our sense of worth depends on how well we do vocationally, if we don't reach our goals, the God of ambition will crush our spirits. And it will hurt people around us. The God of ambition will make us step on people, make us use people on the way up the ladder. The God of ambition will force us to sacrifice our family on its altar. The God of ambition is a dangerous God. God of ambition, the God of relationships. Relationships, again, a good thing. We're wired for relationships, for connections with people, of course. 
But you might hear someone say, oh, I just couldn't live without him. Or I couldn't live without her. Well, maybe that's just a romantic saying. Or maybe, maybe someone has taken the position of something of a God in his or her heart. The God of ambition says how you feel about yourself depends on how others look at you. And, and so when, when your opinion of me or someone else's opinion of you becomes more important than, well, let me start over. When, when your opinion of me or someone else's opinion of you determines how you feel about yourself, then that person has taken on a godlike position in your life. When your value comes from how others see you, then, how, then others have become little g gods. Ambition, relationships, ah, money. Money, not a bad thing. Nothing, no sin in earning all we can as long as we do it ethically, right? And, and saving for the future is a very wise thing. But again, there's, a, there's a, an invisible but dangerous line beyond which money becomes a God. And when, when our hope is in the, the Federal Reserve, when, when an interest in the stock exchange report, stock report, becomes an obsession with the stock report, then money has become a God. When, when we're thinking about a new job and the only thing we think about is how much we're going to make, then money has become a God. Little G gods, ambition, relationships, money, and pleasure. Second Timothy 3, 4 says that, that people will become lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of God. And, and we're headed that way quickly. Pleasure, two words to remember here, hedonism and entitlement. Hedonism is the, the insatiable desire for pleasure, the, the irresponsible pursuit of what feels good. Entitlement is that notion that I'm entitled to pleasure Right or wrong, no matter who gets hurt, hedonism and, re- and entitlement are dangerous for a society. And that's where we are. And hedonism and entitlement are wreaking havoc on our, on our society. It's, on, it's in view, it's on display in a number of ways. The fact that we buy stuff we can't afford and we're we're accumulating as a nation this terrific, terrible credit card debt. It's hedonism and, and entitlement. But it is never more on, nowhere more on display than in our sexuality. The sexual revolution of the 1960s made pleasure without responsibility cool. The sexual re- revolution of the 1960s, opened Pandora's box, got rid of the guardrails, and now we're living with the consequences of that. It's not that people weren't doing things they ought not do before the 60s. It's just that even then, before then, we at least understood right and wrong and what's taboo and what's not taboo. But now choices, behaviors are being celebrated and mainstreamed and normalized. 
that are really destructive for our society. And, and the little G gods are making their way into, into our families and schools and businesses and God forbid even churches. So the first commandment says to you and me that the one true God who revealed himself in Jesus must be the, the undisputed Lord or master of our lives and his word and his grace and his mission must be at the core of who we are and how we live. One more time, the, undis- that the one true God who revealed himself in Jesus must be the undisputed Lord and his word and his grace and his mission must be at the core of who we are and how we live. Why? Let me conclude with three reasons. Number one, why, why, would he, why would he have to be first and undisputed Lord? Number one, he's the king and he deserves it. In the last book of the Bible, there are these dramatic scenes of, of these throngs of heavenly beings, cherubim and seraphim and angels and elders, people and heavenly creatures encircling the throne and they're singing and, and they're singing like the choir sang a few moments ago that conclusion to holy, holy, holy. I don't think it's going to be any better than that. They're singing holy, holy, holy. Re- Revelation 4 says this, they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Why join our hearts and our voices with all those people encircling the throne of God because he spoke and there was light because he hung the stars in space because he breathed life into us and humankind was born. In the old country, if you ask, were to ask somebody, why, do you, why is your allegiance to the king? They would say, duh, he's the king. Why should... Why should the creator of the universe be our undisputed Lord? Because he's the king and he deserves it. Number two, uh, nothing else will satisfy. Little g gods will not satisfy. Isaiah 55, 2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? The worship of lesser gods is not satisfying. Into Thin Air is a best-selling book written by John Krakauer who climbed, reached the summit of Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world. For months and years, he planned that. For months and years, he prepared for that. For months and years, he, he sacrificed for that. And then the time came for the climb and It's such a dangerous climb, there were people who died on his climb of Mount Everest. But he finally made it to the top. And in the first paragraph of the book, get this, it's a book about going to Everest, reaching the summit. In the first paragraph, he writes, I was straddling the top of the world with one foot in China and one in Nepal. He's at the summit, the highest place in the world, looking down literally on everybody else in the world. First paragraph, 
I've been fantasizing about this moment and the release of emotion that would accompany it for many months. Can't you see him dreaming, oh, what it'd be like to stand on the top of the world? But now I was finally here, actually standing on the summit of Mount Everest, and I couldn't summon the energy to care. Have you ever, have you ever worked really hard for something? anticipated it, made sacrifices for it, maybe in your vocation or otherwise, and you reached the summit and thought, hmm, thought it'd be better than this. Did you ever, did you ever reach your own Everest and, and, and were a little bit disappointed by the fact that it didn't feel quite as good as you'd hoped it would or anticipated it would. Lesser gods, ambition and relationships and money and pleasure, they just, don't, they just don't satisfy. So why would you pay money for what's not bread and labor for what does not satisfy? Why, would, why do I say that... Um, the first commandment demands that, that the true God who revealed himself in Jesus must be our undisputed Lord because he's the king and he deserves it and because, because nothing else satisfies. And finally, because if we don't get this one right, if we don't get this one right, lesser gods threaten our well-being the God of ambition will make you sacrifice your family for your vocation. Will make you step on people who don't deserve it. The God of relationships will make you do things you don't even want to do for the applause of people. The God of money will convince you to cheat on your income tax and steal from your clients and rack up unwieldy debt the God of pleasure will convince you that of stuff like, you know, that one little fling won't hurt and, and will ruin your family. If we don't get this right, the, the lesser gods are dangerous. There's a new uh, novel out, fairly new, by John Grisham titled The Exchange, and I've read it. It's a, it's a follow-up. It's kind of like a sequel to the firm. Do you remember the firm? You know, Mitch and, and Abby McDear are, remember they're, they're married and they're in love. And um, I'm just thinking, the poor choir, I, I, I'm just right here in your lap here, aren't I? They, they got to pay attention this morning because I'm standing right here. So the Mitch and Abby McDear, in love, married, they Mitch graduated from Harvard Law School and moved to Memphis where he took a position in a prestigious firm. Well, Mitch finds out that his firm is crooked. They're doing stuff with the, the underworld. And then his firm finds out that he's on to them. So now they have to 
shut him up, right? So they come up with a plan to blackmail him into silence. Here, get the story again. Mitch and Abby moved from Harvard, prestigious law firm. Law firm's crooked. Mitch finds out it's crooked. His law firm finds out that he's found out. Now they've got to do something to hush him up. One night on a beach, Mitch is walking alone. He's, he's confused. He's frightened. And he meets a woman. And she listens. She's empathetic. She's very attractive. And she's available. And Mitch cheats on the wife that he loves. And as it turns out, she didn't just happen to be there. It was a setup. His firm had hired her uh, to seduce Mitch so that they could blackmail him into silence. Why would I tell such a sordid story? Because the enemy, the evil one, the accuser, he who wanders around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, will put women on your beach. He will place little gods in your way Gods like ambition and relationships and money and pleasure. He wants to do you harm. He wants to ruin your family. He wants to ruin your career. He wants to ruin your well-being. Lesser gods are not only unsatisfying, but they are dangerous. Don't be seduced by lesser gods. And so God says to us, I, the true God who revealed myself in Jesus, demand to be your undisputed master because I know what's best for you. And so he says, let my word and my grace and my mission be the core of who you are and how you live. And we're going to sing.